0: Because I think what engaging with history and politics requires you to do is to really inhabit the mindset of of someone else and someone who interprets the world really differently from you. Because if you're going to win a debate or think about how how to form something, you really have to be able to see the world from another person's perspective.
1: Podcast Junkies episode 210. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, you might want to check that out, especially if if you're a traveler or a fan of traveling stories. Scott Gurian, host of Far From Home, did not disappoint. Fascinating, fascinating episode telling about his trip across Morocco and uh, how he's continuing to do the podcast even after a lot of experience in the radio world. And I learned a lot from that episode and uh, it was just fascinating to be placed in some of those Spaces and events and countries that he was referencing on the show, which was fascinating. So make sure you check that out, episode 209. This is the first episode of the new year 2020. Happy 2020 to all lots of things going on. Um, one of the things that was important for me is this idea of theming my year. I've heard it done before. I've kind of haphazardly does it, done it in the past. Um, and I'm just more cognizant and more focused about doing it this year. And so I spent a couple of days in the end of December, uh, more than I probably ever have, thinking about the new year and planning uh, some themes. And the word that I came up with is simplify. And so everything that I do for this podcast, for my business, Fullcast, is all going to be about the concept of simplifying. So what I'm doing now is I'm asking myself as I do a task, as I work on something related to my business or even my personal life as it... I'm asking myself, is this going to make my life simpler or more complicated? So I invite you to share your theme if you've picked one for this year. Send an email to harry at Podcast Junkies and let me know. I'd be happy and interested to hear what you guys have got in the works for 2020. And I'm sure there's been a lot of references made to this idea of 2020 vision and and getting clarity for the next decade. So that's what I'm focused on this year. Once again, we are brought to you by the Scarlet 2i2 sound card by the wonderful folks at Focusrite. Shout out to Dan Hewley. Can't say enough good things about this sound card. Super clean preamps, which provide a clean boost to your sound. So I've used it both with the Samson Q2U microphone as well as the Shure SM7B, which is a bit gain hungry and definitely requires a clean sound card. So this is the new 3G third generation sound card and it's guaranteed to make your audio sound completely professional. This week, I get to speak to Amira Valiani. She's the CEO and co-founder of Glow.fm. Glow is a system for podcasters to be compensated for their podcast, similar to Patreon, but I think it now takes it to the next level because when you ask for support, which I've done in the past and I will do more consistently on this podcast... The mechanism for doing that is so seamless, it's amazing uh, the experience that a listener gets. Simply click on the link in the show notes, and you can test that out at the end of this podcast episode, and you'll be prompted to a screen within the browser of the podcast app to submit or donate, a a one-time donation or an ongoing donation to support the podcast. So she's really making it easy for podcasters to be compensated uh, and for creators in general to be compensated for their art. And the discussion we had is really fascinating because she's got a really interesting background. She's traveled extensively. She's whip smart and she has her Finger on the pulse of what's happening in this industry. So, we've been chatting for a while now, and we're, we're good friends now, and uh, we're hopefully going to be working on some things in the future. So, stay tuned. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast, our full service done for you podcast production agency. If you need help starting a show or have some consulting questions related to your existing show, feel free to set up a free chat with me at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. That's chat one five. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode for this week's retention hashtag, but let's jump into this glowing conversation with Amira. So Amira Valiani, co-founder and CEO of Glow.fm, thank you so much for finding the time to join us on Podcast Junkies.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. It's really good to be here, Harry.
1: So let's see, how did we get connected? We got connected through Ben, is that right?
0: Yeah, Ben Gilbert, uh, co-host of Acquired and... Uh, early customer and investor in Glow, and I think he chatted with you and put us in touch. He was like, "You gotta, you gotta talk to Harry," and uh, I am so glad he did.
1: Let's start with you and tech. What's your earliest memory of technology growing
0: up? Such a good question. So I actually was—I was born and raised in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I grew up in the Bay Area, and my dad, when he, he's an immigrant, and he went to college in New York. And he, the day after he graduated from college, actually picked up, packed his car, and drove out to Silicon Valley to to pursue the dream. And so I was always surrounded by technology and entrepreneurship growing up. And so my earliest memory of technology, and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember the name of the computer, but it was, you know, early 90s. And I remember him and my brother who's a, uh, he's a little older, he's a technologist, uh, hooking up the internet in our house (laughs) and, and getting on there and being like, whoa, this is so cool. Like, look at this, look at this internet thing. And it was, you know, old school, like giant computers. So I've been around technology or, you know, sort of immersed in, in tech culture for a long time. And and it really started with, with my parents, my background.
1: So early nineties. So that might've been Dell or Gateway two thousand, or <laughs> I remember those.
0: I think direct were Dells. Ma- direct
1: mail is a big deal back then.
0: Yeah, it, it, I think it was Dells, and you know, my, my brother was a a huge gamer, so he used to have these LAN parties, mm-hmm. like all his friends come over, and I was the you know the six-year-olds who would crash their their high school party and start playing like doom and world uh and warcraft with them i would skip thanksgiving dinner because i was just so immersed in a warcraft game i I think i was like 14 (laughs) so uh so yeah that was that was sort of the scene
1: was that one of your favorite games worlds of warcraft
0: this was before world of warcraft it was just warcraft i went through a phase uh i was into warcraft for a while and, and then uh you know Grand Theft Auto. I'm not a huge gamer, but but I definitely yeah. uh, had some fun in high school with it.
1: Did you ever? I don't know if Warcraft was because that was a little later. Because I got I got I got started in the Atari 2600 age. <laughs> <laughs> That's dating me. Like Texas Instruments was my first computer and Tandy won th- yeah. You're Tandy right. The T I eighty
0: three. This this is my first experience coding. Like I don't remember Oh man, Harry, you're such a good interviewer. I remember, you know, having my T I eighty three in high school and you know programming those like really, really basic sort of text based yeah. games. And I think there was um, a form of Tetris on it that I was I was playing around with back then. So that was a lot of fun.
1: Well, it was interesting because it was more theater of the mind. Like Zork was a b- big game, uh, Adventure. Uh, there was a couple of one that were literally just text-based games and you would be like you enter a a castle you there's two a door on the left and a door on the right like it was just like lines of text and you just be like oh what am I gonna do and then but your mind is like it's like you're reading like one of those adventure books and it was fascinating Zork was the biggest one I I gotta look it up they probably have it available now like for the iPhone (laughs) like it's crazy Uh, but it's it's fascinating cuz it's now it's the, the graphics are completely on the other side where they look like movies now when i see the promos for some of these games right now i can't tell if it's like a real person like a cgi like <laughs> with with the, with the yeah with these commercials
0: yeah you're right i remember the text based games and and it was all about like some kind of scary room that was fun
1: yeah 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 so tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up having this opportunity to connect with technology at such an early age, but also the fact that you were a female. And I imagine there weren't, were there a lot of your girlfriends in school who were just as well versed or maybe in Silicon Valley, things were different. So I'm just curious about what that was like growing up.
0: Honestly, I think growing up, I sort of took a connection to technology for granted. And what I was really craving was, was something different. You know, when, when you grow up surrounded by technology, you grow so, mm-hmm. surrounded by entrepreneurship and people who are being scrappy, um, and, you know, Stanford and Berkeley are right in your backyard. Uh, Apple is across the street. Um, uh, you don't, you don't necessarily think about something different or something you need to, learn it's it's what you already know it's sort of what you're what you're born into so so at a young age i was always really interested in computer science and i, I guess i took it for granted that i was a woman interested in technology a fun fact uh not to humble brag i think i was one of you know 90 women in california the year i took it to get a five in the ap computer science exam so like <laughs> you know this was early and now i'm, I'm sure they're only like you know 900 people taking it. But it, it was early, and, and it was very much just a part of um, what, I, what I thought the world was. And so when I was thinking about where I want to go next, I, I was sort of like, all right, this this technology thing is cool. Like I, I didn't think of it as a thing. It was just part of my life. I really want to go out and explore the rest of the world. And so I went out to the East Coast for college. I moved out to the Northeast. And I was really intrigued by... The institutions that shape the world. So you know what happens in government, what happens in all these Wall Street banks. Like what are all these things I see in movies that seem so foreign to me that I just haven't experienced here. And I, I guess I always knew that technology was a really important driver of daily life. And for me, the thing I felt like I had to learn about and connect with was how everything happens outside the valley or how people do in other places. I didn't really see, think of the valley as a thing, more so than you know how do I double down on technology or, or how do I connect with it more deeply
1: this could be a, a wide range of uh, options for you to choose from, but do you remember a book or a teacher or a class that shifted your worldview uh, in terms of like, there was a, there was a point, like we all have that moment where we, we realize like the world is a bit different than we thought it was, or it's either bigger or it's more complicated than we think it is. And mm-hmm. just as an, exa- as an example for me, I remember when I got to uh, college and I was assigned the autobiography of Malcolm X. Right. And I was just like, Whoa, I didn't realize like, like American history, like some of the stuff they don't teach you, and like when you're when you're in grade school and you sort of learn some of these other books that teach you other aspects of what's happening in this country. And I'm just curious because of um, some of the education you you've received, if any of that happened with any of the the materials you received as you were as you were getting educated.
0: Yeah, there's there's so many. I've long been. A big fan of history, like a student of history, and a, and a huge student of politics, and and so for me, the the first time I got to really engage with with history and how government is formed was mind blowing for me because I think what engaging with history and politics requires you to do is to really inhabit. The mindset of of someone else and someone who interprets the world really differently from you, because if you're going to win a debate or think about how to how to form something, you really have to be able to see the world from another person's perspective. And so, you know, the first couple of experiences that really did that to me was was in high school. Uh, you know, I had a, a teacher named Mr. Neer, who was my um, my U.S. history teacher, who just did an incredible job of. You know, he'd sort of get up every day in front of the class, and he'd be like, all right, today we're talking about, uh, you know, the Battle of Concord. And he had this really amazing way of being able to say, like, yeah, the the British, like, they were caught with their pants down. Like, this was crazy. And thinking about the British being caught with their (laughs) pants down and having this image in your head of, like, huh, I never thought of it that way. Like, I never never thought of what it it must have been like to inhabit the world of those soldiers. Or – I mean, I, I could talk on and on about my history teachers. I had another one in Mr. Merrill, uh, who I actually go back and, and talk to his class every year, but he would do a simulation where, every, like, one one day a year, you walk in the class and he's, he's doing the best job he can of, of simulating the environment of being on a slave ship. Wow. And so you walk into the classroom and each person, you know, there's masking tape on the floor, you're confined to this one little space, you're ducking the entire time, he's talking about topics that you might be might be discussing. Um, and that stuff, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, it's, it's really striking to have to be forced to internalize what those things might have been like. And th- those are incredibly powerful experiences to me. And I think it's why I gravitate so much towards storytelling. I think so much of the world is about being able to tell a story and take someone else's experiences and communicate them in a way that, that is easy for other people to internalize. Uh, and I think that started with my, my interest in history.
1: That's fascinating. And the fact that your teacher was able to do that at such an early age, I would imagine left a, a pretty big impression on you. And there's something uh, about doing it in a way that's experiential, that
0: mm-hmm.
1: obviously you still remember it to this point, so it, it had a lasting effect.
0: Yeah, I, I had brilliant teachers. I mean, the other thing he did is he he actually got a cotton plant. And he would, he would sort of hand out cotton with still seeds in it and say like, all right, everyone go ahead and and take the seed out of the cotton. And to have to imagine the fact of all day, every day, that being your job and not your job, the, the thing you were being forced to do is sort of revolutionary when you're, when you're studying slavery, it takes something very abstract and turns it into something very, um, very personal.
1: So, with all that, um, with all those amazing teachers you had, and as you were making your way through high school and through college, did, how many times did you change what what it is you thought you wanted to do when, once you graduated?
0: Oh, I had no idea what I wanted to do in <laughs> high school. <laughs> I think the the thing that always drove me was the need to make an impact, and I think something that's still true about me that that I think you know. Uh, a lot of my family and friends sometimes have trouble interpreting and, and I, I, I sift through is I care about making an impact on the world and I think there's a lot of different paths towards doing it and so I think my journey through high school and you know my, my journey through my career is what are the different levers I I sort of uniquely can pull to help make an impact on something and so you know in high school I spent a lot of time as an activist and then that's that thread sort of continued through college and then I went over to work in government after college for a bit um, but what I realized when I was in government was I realized that my Silicon Valley background, even just being sort of on the margins of it, was actually quite unique in terms of how I thought about the power of technology. And so that's when I really started to think about how technology might be able to something that I could uniquely leverage to make an impact. And so when I was in high school, to answer your question, I wasn't thinking too hard about a specific career. I was thinking more about um, you know, the, the problems in the world and getting obsessed with them. And I, I wasn't quite sure how to solve them, but I think those are the things that, that really captured my imagination.
1: Can you remember a time when that became something that was important for you, like this idea of making an impact? Like you don't have it, or maybe you did when you when you were super young, but was there a time when you realized or, or who was it that had was an influence in helping you shape the idea of having an impact as something that was important to you?
0: I think it comes from, from two places. So I, th- I think one, I have a... A broad interest in making an impact on the world and making, yeah, leaving the world a better place than I found it. And then, and then, two is I, I do have a, a pretty deep sense of the need to serve our country and, and be a really good citizen. In addition to just making an impact, and I think both of those really drive from from my religious background. I'm not I'm not a super religious person, but I, I grew up Muslim, and I think a lot of the values that I, I inherited as a child come from that. And so. And my mom's growing up, service is a, a really, really deep component of what's expected mm. to. And and it appears everywhere, you know, at the... Um we learn, you know, in Sunday school, you know, a lot of the amazing impact of, of our, uh, of our sort of religious leaders and, and our parents uh, and the impact they made on the world. So, you know, work in developing countries and, and what you can do to make an impact in places like Pakistan, parts of East Africa, um, you know, Afghanistan. Th- those were things that they would talk about regularly in our mosques. And those were things that felt very visceral because of, where our parents came from, right? My dad came from Pakistan, my mom came from mm-hmm. East Africa, like this idea of making impact where they came from was something that was regularly talked about and, and something that was seen as a part of your, your duty as just being a person growing up. So so I think that's part one, it was just sort of always part of the dialogue. Part two, when it came to service, you know, I, after September 11th happened, it really forced me to think deeply about what it meant to be Muslim and what it meant to be American and, and age that I think, you know, um, people people normally wouldn't be forced to think about it if, if you didn't sort of have to go through that event as you know 11 year old in America and so it, it made me really interrogate deeply what parts of my religion were important to me and what parts of my country were important to me and I, I think uh, the values that I learned from being Muslim and the values I learned from being American are, are actually um, very similar it's about you know commitment to a diverse set of people and helping uh, and helping promote this idea that, that diversity is incredibly important and something that when we work together it the yield is, is a better world, a stronger world, one where people cooperate but also one where just more great stuff happens and the commitment to those two projects to me seemed actually deeply overlapping and, and I think that's when I was like man I, I feel really strongly about being an American like this is an incredible project that I get to be a part of and have the opportunity to advance um, so I, I don't know if those those were the answers you we were looking to for your questions. But I think if I think about the notion for an impact, that's where they come from.
1: How did what happened post 9-11 affect you and, or your family or anyone that you were close to?
0: Um, I think what happens when, you know, you're, 11 or 12, and you, you've just grown up, like, your religion's what you know, right? Like, you, I, I don't know if you're religious, Harry, but, you know, you grew up going to mosque, you grew up going to church. Like, it, it's not a thing. It's just, it's just what your family does yeah. on Fridays or Sundays, and you sort of show up. And being forced at a really early age to be told, oh, this, this thing that you're a part of is evil or under attack or responsible for this awful thing that happened to... You know, your family and your friends, uh, and in your country, it really forces, um, it forced me to interrogate, like, what does it mean to be Muslim? And it, it, helped me think about first, like, how do I defend my religion? But also, you know, how do I, how do I prod and figure out, like, the places where I can be true to both things? So, in the immediate after- aftermath of 9 11, you know, my family, and it's, it's not a unique story, like, there's just a lot of fear. You know, we were told when we went to mosque not to wear ethnic clothing. Uh, people were told to park across the street, not in the actual parking lot, so that their cars wouldn't get damaged. There was sort of this general general message of don't act out, don't, you know, don't draw attention to yourself. And I think the number one lesson I learned through that process uh, was... I think that's the wrong strategy (laughs) like it's so easy to be scared but what happens is look look where we are it's 18 years later and and Americans still have no idea what Islam is about and the fear is worse and the, the skepticism is worse and what we should have been doing I think proactively is going out and and telling our story and, and talking about the values that we preach, that I think, I, th- I think are very American values and finding ways to engage the community more and more. Now, it's very easy for me to say, I didn't have children. I was a child, right? Like, you want to, the instinct is to, is to protect yourself and protect your flock. Uh, but I think that one of my main takeaways was, you know, we, we were very scared and we should have, we should have been more outgoing. The other thing it did is it really forced me to, uh, to understand what Islam is and where I fit into the broader picture. So it really set off for me, uh, I think, um, a lot of wanderlust. Like, I spent a lot of the next mm. what, 15 years of my life investing in traveling, to a learn lot, a lot about the world. You know, I've, I've been to almost 60 countries today. I spent a lot of my time in college visiting different parts of the Muslim world and the world more broadly and, and learning people's stories and learning wow. about the different ways that people um, – People relate to religion, but relate to their country and relate to each other. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of it fundamentally comes back to increasingly why I think the importance of a story is so critical uh, is, is probably shaped by that experience.
1: Yeah, I was in New York for nine eleven. I was I experienced the whole thing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was it had a very visceral reaction to it. And
0: what was its impact on you? Yeah,
1: it was so strange because I I worked like two blocks away from it. And I was literally like heading out the door 845 in the morning. Cause I would check the weather on news one before hitting the subway, which would take a fifteen-minute ride, and I'd be at work by nine. But the the first one had crashed by that time. So when I turned on the TV, the first tower was already on fire. And so I lived in East Village, and I could look out my window and see the Twin Towers every morning. So I could literally, like, wake up in the morning and I see, would well, see the Twin Towers. And so this morning I would look out, and I one of them was on fire. So I was watching the TV, which looks like a movie, and then I'd look out the window and I'd see like what was really happening. It was so bizarre so we, we all ran up to the roof it was like a five-story uh building in, in the east village and we were just watching everything from from the east village which is you know about you know 20-30 blocks north kind of, it was just like so real someone pulled out a telescope and at some point we were like looking and we we're just trying to figure out like how are we going to get like firefighters like whatever it was 90 stories up there we were just like going crazy and then nothing happened and then we went back down then the second plane hit and and then Well, the second plane hit, and then we were like all like freaking out. Then we saw fighter jets flying overhead, and then at some point it was still burning. We went, I went back down, and then they collapsed, and we were like, holy shit. And then we ran upstairs and we just saw everything, and we were just imagining like how many tens of thousands of people just perished right there. It was, it was bananas. Um, The smoke made its way up to where we were, uh, and then the next couple of days were so surreal. It was like Humvees in the streets. But it was interesting because I I talk about this uh, I've talked about this a couple of times that that those couple of weeks maybe maybe a month or two after there was a small town feel to New York City, like literally like we were all like hey like kind of you doing a small town howdy neighbor like (laughs) like everybody was talking to each other everybody was asking how you doing how you doing how you doing, Um, which you normally don't see in New York City so. Yeah, it was interesting because I have coworkers at the time who made th- who normally show up earlier than me, and they literally like had gone out into the street to watch what was happening, and they had to like run back inside the building and the building where I worked. The smoke went so high that it blacked out the windows, so it was it was just crazy. And a lot of people that were down there, obviously, yeah, they had to walk home. Some people took like eight nine hours to walk home, so it was just a crazy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a it was a crazy day. But um, I'm always interested when. I always hear people that uh, reference it, like where they were and like what they were doing at the time. Because just it just fascinates me.
0: Wow, that must have been terrifying.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just not knowing what was going to happen, and you just keep hearing like it just kept getting worse and worse. And the Pentagon got hit. Now there's like they're like, what's what's next? Like what are they gonna? (laughs) Like obviously, like uh, everything's crazy. So now let's shift into you leaving college and hitting the workforce. Uh, talk a little bit about the the early first jobs you had.
0: I left college, and one of the first things I did was move down to D.C., and I got a job uh, as an intern at the White House. That's cool. Which is an incredible, incredible experience. I was like, man, this is my, my life dream. And this was... Shortly after sort of the the, the bottom of uh, the 2008 crisis, and I was working on policy of the National Economic Council, yeah. I went to government and had this incredible opportunity to serve and it was capped at six months, and a, a couple months in, I said, this is incredible. <laughs> and what I was really trying to figure out through that experience is a lot of people would knock working for the government, right? A lot of people say it's slow and people aren't very smart, and I was like, man, these perceptions are all around, like the people I work with, they're incredibly interesting, they're interested, it's fast paced, they're solving really difficult problems, they're some of the smartest people I've ever met, and man, are their hearts in the right places. And I said, I wanna figure out how to to stay here. So, you know, I went out and and tried to figure out how I could stay, you know, serving, and ended up at the State Department where I worked as a, as a special assistant to uh, one of sec- then-Secretary Clinton's right-hand aides. So I sort of worked in her uh, Office of Policy Planning. You know, doing, I don't know if you ever watched The West Wing. Um, no, it's on the but, list.
1: I, I, I It's on the binge list.
0: <laughs> or maybe these, like, political dramas. Well, I it's watched, like, um, that person.
1: The, well, the same writer, so I'm familiar with the style, but the guy who wrote, uh, it's Sorkin, right?
0: Social network, yeah. But, but they seem like.
1: And the network, have you seen the, the. Is it on HBO? It was on HBO or Netflix, the series The Network. It was about uh, a, a TV station. Uh,
0: Oh, I never watched it. But yeah, his style. But maybe you've watched like other political dramas, like Scandal or whatever. You know, in these political dramas, there's there's the important person. uh, Sure. (laughs) Yeah, House of Cards. Um, There's the important person. And then there's the person who like follows that person around and tells them their schedule and like takes notes. And I was that person. I was the person who like followed the important person around and took notes. And it was it was just a really incredible experience to serve and sort of see how really smart people dealt with a lot of really tough problems in the world and and get the chance to sort of contribute to that environment. And so, you know, I I sort of worked my way up to the chance to get to do some speech writing for then-Secretary Clinton. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I was there was I'd always known media was important and I'd always known that the story that we tell the world is important. But, But man, I didn't realize how critical it was to be able to tell a story and communicate what you're doing in the world like I think that's that's where I was like man media crafts so much of our social narrative and and helps shape so much policy and, and what we decide to do as a country this is critical like we spent so much of our time thinking about you know we have this policy decision how is this gonna play how are we gonna communicate this to the world how are people gonna interpret it that that way and it's very easy to think that stuff cynically right like what is the policy where are the talking points but no the, the talking points are actually a critical part of the policy making decision because if people don't understand what you're trying to do uh, the policy will often fail or not get communi- or not get implemented the way you want yeah, to. Makes sense. And so we spent a lot of time doing that. And, and after Secretary Clinton left, her stuff left, um, I want to stay in government a longer. So I got to go over to work at the White House on the National Security Council, where I worked on the team that decided how we discuss American foreign policy to the world and coordinate that entire uh, apparatus, everything from sort of day-to-day talking points to our longer-term, what we call public diplomacy initiatives. And so th- those were my first couple of jobs out of college
1: when did the entrepreneurial bug hit
0: yeah i'd always had it i just didn't think i realized it was very unique uh, going back to that sort of silicon valley background and when i was in government you know i, I i've always been kind of a, a scrappy person and, and i don't i don't have a good habit of asking for permission and i started to do things a couple of times you know move a policy forward or investigate an issue and i would get i would get slapped on the wrist for it and i was like Oh, there's a reason that I should not be risk-taking and going out to move the ball forward on a specific policy issue by myself as a 24-year-old in government, you know, who's who's being trusted with with their responsibilities and aid. And what I realized is, you know, one of the things I really excel at is going out to find scrappy ways to get done, seeing a problem, coming up with different solutions, experimenting. There's very little room for that when you're working on the National Security Council, for good reason. But what I realized is, oh, I, I have this entrepreneurial bug in me. I always took it for granted that it was an entrepreneurial bug. I thought it was sort of the way you did things. I'm realizing there's a difference between the way I tend to do things naturally and the way good policy is made and the way a good policymaking process works. And I started to think back to you know my upbringing in Silicon Valley and, and what I learned from my dad and, and my mom, who's also a fantastic entrepreneur, um, and I said, yeah. I actually should be starting a company. I should be working in a much more entrepreneurial environment. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have any previous business training, really. Uh, And so I said, you know, let let me go off and figure out the best way to learn how to be an entrepreneur, and that's when I went to business school. And, and the thing I went to business school to do is, you know, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't, I didn't want to start just anything. I wanted to start something that I thought made the media environment work better because of what i had seen about how critical the media was to the functioning of our country. And so I went to business school and I said, you know, I, I want to do something entrepreneurial and I want to do something entrepreneurial that I think really uh, contributes to a stronger media environment.
1: Was Glow your first entrepreneurial venture?
0: No. Uh, Glow, is, Glow is sort of the outbringing of a winding path of me learning about the podcast industry as a podcaster myself, as someone who helps sell ads for podcasts, really tried to strengthen this industry and realizing that, that I think what we do at Glow is, is uniquely one of the best things that we can do to, I think, help put more money into the industry. So I went to business school. Like I said, I want to do something entrepreneurial, and I want to do something that made the media work better, and I, I didn't know what that meant. In my first year, I heard a podcast, um, and it was the startup podcast out of Gimlet. And I, I was like, mind blown, you know, fell in love immediately. I was like, I you a lot know, of us empathy had empathy for this guy. Yeah.
1: That same reaction. Yeah.
0: Absolutely incredible. And I was like, all right, this is the thing. Like, I got to learn more about this podcasting industry. So, you know, I became obsessed. I went from zero to listening to three or four hours of podcasts a day. My data went over the whole nine yards. And I was like, all right, what's going on with this industry? How can I get involved? And as I started to look around, I was like, huh, there aren't that many jobs in this space. There are, there's, there's not that much clarity around how this industry works. And I said, all right, how can I how can I do something interesting? And I had a few friends with podcasts. I said, Can I go sell you ads? And so I ended up building out this podcast advertising business, thinking that um you know I could I could help sort of work with podcast advertising. I simultaneously started my own podcast. I started a local news podcast about the city council election in my town. And yeah, I was I was working with a bunch of podcasters sell ads. I I learned a ton about the advertising ecosystem, and I'd also seen a bunch of podcasters get either frustrated by how the ecosystem worked or finding other ways to supplement their income from the advertising ecosystem. And I I found myself in a similar spot where I had started a podcast and I I wanted to ask people to pay for it. Like, you know, I built an audience and I, I didn't want to put the whole thing behind a paywall, but I said, there's really valuable content I can create for my community. I need to figure out how to turn this in the business. How do I do that? And I started feeling like a lot of the same pain points that a bunch of my clients on the advertising side had. And as I looked around, I realized like, wow, there's no easy way for listeners to pay me directly for a thing. And what I had seen from all my other clients was they were hacking together solutions to collect payments from their listeners, either for content or to access to a community or to quarterly market reports, whatever it was, right? And I was like, huh, I have this problem as a podcaster. All these other people I'm working with have the same problem. Maybe this is the problem I should be solving, not how do I get more advertising. Because a lot of people are working on how you get more advertising. It's still a problem, but there's a bunch of people there. But how do I make it easy for people to pay podcasters directly and, and even give them the option to, to gate content? So that's how I got to Glow. But that journey was, you know, three or four years long.
1: <laughs> As is the case with most entrepreneurs. Of right?
0: course, yeah. What
1: were some of the early challenges with Glow?
0: It's funny, like we're, we're still early. So I'm like, oh, what are our challenges today? I, I think it's funny how much the industry has changed in just the past year. Mm-hmm. Because I think when I went out you know, to podcast movement in 2017 and was starting to bounce this idea off people, they they were intrigued, but they said, I don't know if anyone will ever pay for a podcast. And I sort of believed that there was a future where people might pay for podcasts and it was, so, so you, even a year and a half ago, like monetization felt synonymous with advertising. Yeah. And what's happened in the past year is people are realizing, wow, there's a ton of investment in the space. You're starting to see the inklings of people making exclusive content. Right. And, and also content creators are saying like, Wow! Like I could really diversify revenue streams here. There, there are way more ways to make money, and they're they're really intrigued and interested and excited about this idea of um, having listeners pay them directly. And so, I think one of the early challenges was like convincing people that I thought this is where the industry is going. And luckily, the industry helped and is continued helping like catch up and, and help solve that challenge. And so, you know, the the um, the, the educational aspect of it, or or maybe the the vision-setting aspect of it was one of the earliest challenges as a company. And I think it's still something we're getting better and better at. Like, we're sort of showing people where this is going.
1: So let's take a step back and explain for any listeners that may not know <laughs> exactly what Glow is or may have heard a little of me dis- describe it a little bit in the intro. But uh, can you explain for, for two audiences, for podcasters uh, who may not have heard of glow. And and then if you had to explain glow to someone who's, who's not a podcaster, how would you, how would you do both of those?
0: Yeah. For the podcasters out there or for anyone, you know, glow is designed to be the best way for podcasters to be able to let listeners pay them directly. And it could either be for listener support or to actually, uh, charge for content. Um, we distinguish ourselves in a few ways. Uh, one is we are purpose-built for podcasting. So yes, there are a lot of tools out there where people can accept payments. We built one that is specifically designed to capture a listener from the point where they hear their call to action in the audio to make it as easy as possible for them to pay and access that premium content in whatever podcast app they're listening to within 30 seconds. So we are purpose-built for podcasting and making it really easy for your listeners to pay you. Um, uh, the, se- the second thing we do is, is we are purpose built for people who uh, think of their podcast or their content as a business. And so mm-hmm. we really focus on putting the podcasters' branding first, making it easy to create a, a pretty light uh, lightweight uh, branding experience for your listeners. And also making the whole transaction process as frictionless as possible, and helping customize that for you, and, and so that's what we do for podcasters. So we work with you know podcasts, big and small, to help them support their listener support or premium uh, premium content programs. You know, uh, our largest creators making you know, upwards of forty thousand dollars a year just by charging for premium content today, and we're continuing to grow and working with more and more podcasts who are interested in building a really robust membership subscription or, or just paid content program. For listeners uh, or people who aren't podcasters, you know, Glow is an easy way for you to to support or pay the content creators that you love directly. Mm. Um, and so, you know, some, something that you might not know if you're not a if you're not a podcaster yourself is monetization is a huge problem in the industry. And you know, the average podcast that you listen to, so every podcast listen you get on average, that makes the industry one penny. So you might listen to an hour of content that makes the industry one penny. Best in class for pennies. Like the, the podcasts do a really good job of, of monetizing. What that means is, you know, every thousand listeners that a podcaster is getting, they on average make $10. And and some do better, some do worse than that. But but really one of the biggest problems in the industry is that you know, a lot of people are creating great content, but they're not making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a rise in a lot of different options for people to pay for content or pay creators directly. And, and we hope we want to be the, the tip of the sphere of that wave and make it really easy for you to do so.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how the technology works for folks that are familiar with uh, consuming podcasts on their favorite podcast app? How does that change or what is the experience like when I'm listening to a podcast and I see the Glow. Uh, FM link in the show notes?
0: Yeah, so so here's the experience of your listener. You'll hear a call to action from Harry or your favorite podcaster, and they say, you know, if, if you love what you do and, and you want more, uh, we have a special premium subscription that you uh, that you can offer and get more of the content that you love, or maybe an ad free version of the content you love. Uh, click on this link in the show notes. What happens is a, a page pops up. It feels like you've never left the app, and you sort of see what you're getting. It's just like any checkout page. You just press tap to check out, and you pay using Apple or Google Pay really seamless. You don't have to create a login or anything like that. And then you're taken to another page that has a link of podcast players. So Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. You choose the player that you want to listen in. So let's say it's Apple Podcasts. Great. Press done. And then in your Apple Podcast library alongside all your other podcasts, you see that private exclusive content that's just for you. Uh, that's not easily searchable in your iTunes store, but you can listen to it everywhere else that your podcasts are. And so... For listeners, the idea is to make the journey as simple as possible. We're not trying to change listener behavior. We're not trying to get you to download a new app. We're not trying to get you to create a new login for another service. We just want to make it really easy for you to get the option to check out and pay. And if a podcaster, you want to offer premium content, for you to offer that that premium or exclusive content wherever your listener is.
1: Sounds pretty easy and pretty straightforward. Yeah, (laughs)
0: it's built to be incredibly easy.
1: What were some of the technical challenges putting something like that together?
0: Yeah. So, so basically, you know, the the biggest questions around podcasting and, and why the space can be really difficult to innovate in is two reasons. One is m- traditionally most of the listening in the space has been done through the Apple Podcast app. Now it's changing. It's becoming a more discovery environment. But what that means is, you know, the the listening data exists a lot across a lot of different places, and um, And a lot of that data was traditionally held by Apple. So it's really difficult for podcasters to sort of understand what listening looks like. So that's thing one is... is listener information exists everywhere now from private privacy perspective that's actually great like as a listener you're like you know i um i'm not my data is not being sold off somewhere but but it's it's made it difficult for podcasting to piggyback off some of the other business models that have made other um mediums thrive in the internet era thing two is podcasts are distributed through something called an rss feed now rss feed is an internet protocol that's that's existed since you know close to the beginning of the internet that basically makes it really easy to tie together pieces of content in a list form and and serve that out and so you might one of my favorite closed down products was google reader google reader made it really easy to pick up rss feeds and, and create sort of a seamless experience where you could browse your favorite content podcasts are all rss feeds so they are you know a link to a page that has sublinks to a bunch of different pieces of content audio content and that's how it's served out across different podcast players the benefits of that, it's, it's an open protocol. It's existed since the beginning of podcasting, or, or since the beginning of the internet, basically. And it's relatively simple to serve out content. The the downsides of it is it's sort of one, uh, I don't know if you could call it protocol or distribution system, but, but RSS sort of works in one way. And it has limitations and, and boundaries in terms of how you can set something up in terms of the HTML page. So when we're thinking about Glow, you know, the, the biggest technical limitations are, all right, like, we want to be able to reach listeners wherever they listen. We don't want to make them download a new app. So we're like, all right, got to exist within the current podcasting ecosystem where people are listening across a number of different apps. And two, got to work within the current podcasting ecosystem where content gets distributed via RSS feed. Yeah. And and so we had boundaries that we had to operate within. Those are the early technical challenges. It's like those boundaries set up um, – sub-constraints what's cool is once we better understand those boundaries like we realize like oh man there, there's some like really interesting opportunities here right there are ways that you can play around with rss protocol to do really cool things and i know you're playing around with those harry with like things like chapters and even adding images to rss feeds like there's lots of cool next level stuff that can be done and now that the constraints have been set it's just about understanding that technology well enough that you can start to figure out like what those next level things are
1: What has you most excited about the future of GLOW uh, in terms of features or industries or use cases for the application?
0: I think... So first things first is like I'm just really excited to help give podcasters a new way to be able to make money and, and my personal goal is I want to have I want to be able to create a thousand new podcasting entrepreneurs of so people who can start to seriously take their podcast either full-time or, or really part-time um, You know in in the very near future and so so that's first things first is like help help podcasters make some money um, but but also you know one of the most interesting things about this journey is I realize Podcasting is one form of medium, but there's a ton of content creators out there, and audio is a way that content creators can use to get um, their content across, and it's booming right now because of podcasting, but a lot of people are still sort of intimidated by podcasting. And so what I'm excited about is the the opportunity for GLOW to help content creators who have built proficiencies in other mediums and are now starting to explore podcasting and give them a real option for figuring out another way to monetize the amazing content they've already created. And, And these folks exist everywhere. You know, they're they're on YouTube, they're Instagrammers, they're teachers, they're coaches. There's tons of folks out there creating really valuable content. And what we want to do is help make it possible for them to develop a whole new revenue stream. So those are sort of the two things I'm most excited about. In terms of features, you know, in the very near term, we're going to roll out some exciting features that make it really possible for anyone not just to run their exclusive content program through Glow, but to run their entire membership program through Glow. So you can add on, you know, things like newsletters, things like exclusive access mm. to communities. Like we right. are, we're building that platform. So that's, that's in the near term. But in the long term, you know, those, those two big goals are the ones that I'm most pumped about.
1: Are you seeing an increase in the adoption rate or the the use or just people kicking the tires with Glow um, now that more and more people are becoming aware of it?
0: Yeah, we're seeing we're seeing really, really awesome growth. I, I can't share numbers, but I think what's been really fun is to see this thing grow from you know, one podcast a year ago to tons more on the platform. And I think the most exciting thing is like all the different use cases we're seeing. You know, I didn't realize you know, Glow could be just an awesome platform for people to share out biographies, or to direct consumer publish audiobooks, or fitness coaching. And so, what's fun is like now that we start to unlock the possibilities of what someone could do with it, and we are able to pitch those possibilities to content creators. Like we're starting to see like a real tick up in adoption. And I, I really think 2020 is going to be the year where the idea of a paid podcast goes from "huh," like I would never pay for a podcast, to "oh yeah, these are normal," and like I'm, yeah. I'm I paid for that. That thing's awesome.
1: Very cool. What else about the industry in general has has got you excited?
0: I'm curious to hear your answer to this, Harry, but I think the fact that so many people are paying attention and there's a ton of people paying attention to the space and, frankly, like a lot of competition in the space, it means that it's going to grow a ton and the options out there for content creators and listeners are going to grow exponentially in the next two to three years. You know, like, I don't love competition, but I kind of love competition. Because what it does is it forces me to be like, how can we excel? How can we kick ass in this space? And like, (laughs) what can we do that no one else is paying attention to? And the fact that there are, you know, hundreds or thousands of other other sort of companies blossoming in podcasting or in content creation that are looking at podcasting that are thinking the same thing means that um, you're just going to see a lot of creativity pop up in the next one or two years. And and the industry is going to look very, very different by the end of the year 2021.
1: Yeah, I've noticed it myself. I've only been doing it for about five years, since 2014. And so there's a couple of OGs that I've interviewed who've been doing it since, you know, I think it's 2006 or, you know, when the first ones came out. But I think it's the marriage of the cultural interest in podcasting with the just the availability of the technologies now that's making things super interesting. Because I've been, I mean, just in the conversations I'm having on this podcast, I'm just having more of those with... Folks who are innovating in the podcasting space, and I've been, I've had a couple of conversations with Andrew Mason, of uh, uh, the former CEO of Groupon, who's got Descript now, and they just acquired Lyrebird. And there's the amount of money that's going into this space uh, with interesting technologies uh, to help podcasters and the podcasting ecosystem has been really fun to watch, and I think it's just exponentially going to get even more fun and and more interesting in the next. To, to your point, in the
0: next year or two. Yeah, and there's there's tons of room to grow. Like I was, I look at these stats periodically, and I think, I think it's like around 20 percent of Americans listen to podcasts on a weekly basis today, which is which is insane growth from you know last year, or 2014. Ninety percent of Americans listen to terrestrial radio on a weekly basis today. So so it's like yeah, the, the industry's going to turn, but like holy shit, like there's so much more room. So, and, and, and every, you know, one of those millions more people is more opportunity. So uh, I think the growth is really cool.
1: A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently?
0: That's a good question. Here's an interesting one actually is we, so we, we put out a piece um about a month ago on uh, the size of the podcast live events market. It's something that we're really interested in. and you know we we did what I think is like the first market sizing to figure out podcast live events and how much it's growing. And one of the cool things that came out was um, the former chief economist of Spotify reached out and said, like, hey, I think this is really interesting. Like we're really stoked about the growth of the space. And so we we've had some good conversations with them. and I think, um, I had honestly been quite skeptical of the entrance of Spotify and major platforms in podcasting. And after these conversations, I think what, what it's made me realize is like, there's, there's so much advantage to having someone who is a major platform who has tons of room to invest and tons of room to investigate and tons of time to ask these big questions in the space. Cause he's able, let's say to, if we have a question like, how do podcasting live events impact listenership? Now that's a research question. I would have just written off, right? Mm-hmm. He's able to look into it and Spotify is yeah. interested in looking into it. That's and cool. so I think having these partner, or these bigger platforms in the space that are really investing in the growth of it, um, I think are going to help grow. Monetization in ways that we never would have thought of before, because they're able to answer the questions that we just haven't been able to, and and I think they're they're engaged and willing to to help make that information public and share it.
1: That's fascinating, and uh, I have to. I don't think I've seen that report from you guys yet, but I definitely want to. I'll send it over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah dig into that. But anything that that whole. State of the industry, the stuff that Edison Research does. I think um, it's it's really fascinating stuff, and I think to your point, the more we understand the ecosystem, I think it'll just open up opportunities, and savvy entrepreneurs will figure out like there's 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 a need that can be served by some a lot of this information that's coming out in a way that gets podcasters in the hands of more people and just or, it, or even just educating folks into the benefit of podcasts and of live events and so that's fascinating that, that you guys have started to have that conversation
0: yeah it was it was really a, a lot of fun uh and i was i was like man this this is cool like I'm, I'm pumped about just a million a million other questions we can start to answer now
1: very cool what is the most misunderstood thing about you
0: I don't have a I don't have a great answer to that probably because I, I guess I I should have a better understanding of the way I'm perceived versus you know the, the way I am so uh, I, I don't know is the answer I think one thing that I've that I've realized that is that is orthogonal related to your question is um, perhaps I don't have a good answer to what's misunderstood about me because I've done a poor job communicating uh, my opinions and, and who I am and I think one of the things I've realized in the past year about Starting a company, um, and you're t- temporarily staying away from podcasting to start that company is I really miss the opportunity to share my voice and, and, um, and tell my stories. And so th- there's not much people can misunderstand because I haven't, I haven't given them the opportunity to understand me enough to even have a misunderstanding. Uh, and so yeah, one of my, one of my goals is, to get out there more and and to share my voice more and and get back into that podcasting. So, so I hope by this time next year, I'll have a good answer to that question. Maybe that can be my resolution is have something people can misunderstand about me because I've given them the chance to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just one of those questions that (laughs) it's a conversation starter, if anything. So I'm always intrigued by the answers people give. So that was, I'd
0: be intrigued by your answer to it.
1: That's that's in the bonus content for Glow subscribers. Yes. <laughs> I just did that on the spot right now. So, nice uh, product placement there. So, Great. well, Amira, uh, I was so looking forward to this conversation um, and you definitely did not disappoint. And uh, it turned out even better than I imagined. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. I, I appreciate you sharing your story as well. I think um, that that's always fascinating for listeners to hear the background and, and what makes you, you, you. Um, and so I appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, tell the story of Glow.
0: Well, thank you, for, thank you for the chance. This is a really fun conversation. And it went places I didn't think it would, but the, those are always probably the most fun parts of someone's identity. So I'm excited to, uh, to hear the feedback.
1: So glow.fm for folks uh, looking to sign up uh, and test out the service. And is there, are there a couple of places uh, you can direct people to if they want to g- connect with you or any other uh, sites you want to share?
0: Yeah. So check out glow.fm. And you can email me directly. We can put um, the the link in the show notes as well or distribute it out. But it's just amira, A-M-I-R-A at glow.fm. And you should feel free to shoot me a note.
1: Thanks again for your time and have a fantastic day. Thanks, Harry. Wow, that was a lot of fun. Definitely a stimulating conversation with Amira, learned a lot about what drives her, about her background, how that influenced her decisions, and how that led her to create GLOW. I've been digging these conversations with these amazing leaders in the podcasting space, as well as these ongoing conversations with podcast hosts. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to mix those up, and I hope you're enjoying them as well. Always looking for positive feedback. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 210. Don't forget to check out the glow.fm link in the show notes that was referenced in this episode. Any help in the support and the production of this podcast is always appreciated. It's been a passion project for the past five years now. And I'm eternally grateful to all the sponsors who have made an appearance on here and all the positive feedback and reviews I continue to get. Special shout-out to Timothy Kim O'Brien, who wrote recently on Podchaser. One of my favorite go-to places for reviews now is Podchaser. Uh, make sure you check out my interview with Cole Raven, co-founder of Podchaser. Timothy writes, Harry is the classic interviewer that really does his homework and has his finger on the pulse of the podcast world each and every episode, introduces his listeners to a podcaster who we may have missed but deserves to be heard. Harry is approachable in person as well as through his podcast and business. This isn't just another interview show. Harry is the guy to know if you want to meet people doing great shows. I've personally recommended him to my real life friends and we use him as an example in our monthly meetups. Take a listen. You can thank me later. And I'm going to thank him now. Thanks so much, Timothy, for that heartwarming review. Again, on Podchaster, grateful for that. I'll be making a a more concerted effort to make sure I read out some of these on these episodes as well. I'm working on a couple of interviews for next week, so I'm not sure which one is actually going to be in next week, so we'll hold off on teasing that one out. Music by Cedar and Soil. Make sure you check them out at cedarandsoil.com. So grateful for the long journey George and I have been on, even though he may not remember it, but helping me out with that music when this show got started. I'm eternally grateful to him for that. As always, thanks to our sponsors, Focusrite and the beautiful line of 2i2 sound cards for production and show notes courtesy of Fullcast. And you've made it this far, so you're ready for the first retention hashtag of 2020. Let's go with Amira glow, and you can tag myself at podcast underscore junkies and amira at amira valiani to let us know you're a true podcast junkie who's made it to the end of this episode the first one of 2020 wishing you all an amazing start to your new year and we'll catch you next week